traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. All right, here we go in three, two, one. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast, a podcast to promote and improve your practice as an athletic trainer. I'm Jeremy Jackson, host, but today Randy and Sandy from AT Corner are joining me to interview Dr. Matt Camarillo, talking about backboarding of the injured athlete. Without much further ado, oh, this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash backboarding. So thanks for joining us live at the 2023 Memorial Hermann Sports Medicine Update. Uh, Sandy, you got it. Thank you, Jeremy. So Matt, um, just to get us started, what is um, how common are these spinal cord injuries? If you look at the athletes in the U.S., it's only about 9 to 10% a year. Okay. So there's about 12,000 nationally. And when we're talking about spinal cord injuries, we're talking about people, not just for spine border, but the people that ended up with some kind of neurological or incomplete recovery after their injury is about 12,000 nationwide. Only about 9 to 10% of those are associated with the athletic population. Um, just looking at the physicals that are coming in now, I have a couple of athletes who have had previous spinal cord injuries. What are some things that I might be um, more aware of when I'm taking care of these athletes? Yeah, you know, people who had it is mainly due to, one is a trauma, two is because they were born with some cervical stenosis. And I think making sure they've been seen by a, a spine surgeon that's really associated with the athletic population. I've seen several that have just been disqualified because they have cervical stenosis, but they don't necessarily hit the qualifications that they should uh, be out of any contact sport. So I think making sure that they're seen by someone that understands the sport and not just always looking at a book of saying this is what it is. And so um, we're blessed here in Houston to have several of those spine surgeons here. Um, the great ones up in Dallas too, that a lot of times if they've been disqualified, I refer them that way. Um, so they can give them all the research, the risk benefits, and making sure the parents, the athlete, and everyone's on the same understanding of what, what could happen, but making sure they're given the ability to do that, to play if they like to. Makes sense. So a lot of education, which we take into consideration with a lot of other uh, things. Um, you know, we talk about spinal cord injuries, and the first thing that we think of is, is football. And we think, um, you know, it, it's equipment-heavy um, it's collision-based, and, you know, we, we talk about the equipment removal for that, but what is the incidence in other sports? You know, honestly, they didn't break it down uh, because I think, you know, you look at most research and <laughs> athletic populations around football, but we know that it happens in lacrosse, hockey, gymnastics, um, even in you can get an occasional soccer or baseball where there's contact, basketball as well. Um, so those can all happen. The research just isn't there on the correct thing. I think if you know, the, if you look at the research, if they have helmet and shoulder pads for whatever sport, then those keep them in neutral alignment. If they only have a helmet, that helmet probably needs to come off. But I think uh, it's just based on the sport. But there's not a whole lot of re, uh, research to support that. Okay. <clears throat> These spinal cord injuries. You also, I think, if I remember the number correctly, in your talk, I think you said there were about twelve thousand per year. 
Um, are these spinal cord injuries with awareness and education, are we increasing these, decreasing these? Well, it, so if you look at it, 12,000, that's nationwide for all, including automobile accidents, MCCs, things like that. I think uh, those, a lot of those you can't prevent. And right. even, even the football, not all those injuries you can prevent, but I think you can prevent a lot of them with, you know, making sure the tackling techniques correct and enforcement with the referees and making sure they're they're enforcing that as well as the coaches but making sure the helmet and shoulder pads uh if you look at it they kind of average out but if you look at since 1975 when they first started documenting all these it's definitely gone down um is there a reason for that i, I think it's just more awareness to it okay. more than anything i think when you put awareness to it um it really heightens everyone and i think if we don't put awareness to it we'll probably see those go up again um, so moving back into um, narrowing down into more of an athletic training setting and working um, with like sport athletes, for example, um, what would be our initial assessment? What are some red flags for, um, okay, I need to move on and actual get this person on the spine board? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is I always say that anyone, if they have a big trauma, like a head on uh hit and they're unconscious also level of consciousness you run into the idea do they have a concussion or is there a spot and they can't give you a clear answer so a lot of it is clinical judgment on that i think if they have any numbness bilaterally which kind of differentiate it from a brachial plexus injury or a stinger mm -hmm. uh, is more in line with something more central as a, something more unilateral um, and then uh, naturally if there's any deformity meaning you know their heads in a which I don't know if you'd actually see in an athletic part, you see that more with car accidents, but if you notice um, palpating on their C-spine, I feel a huge step off. That's mm. definitely a red flag as well. And I think in the cervical spine, a lot of pain. As I showed in my uh, on that one case presentation, his biggest red flag was he was in a lot of pain. And mm -hmm. this is a wrestler football player who was saying, my neck just hurts. And there was no, it was tender midline as well as paraspinal, but he just said, this thing hurts like crazy. He had no neurological deficits. So some of it, you always just trust your gut. You don't want a spine board 10 people in one football game. <laughs> um, and that's why it's helpful for the athletic trainer to know the athlete. Oh, no, you know, every time he gets beat, he goes down type thing versus this is a big kid. And we didn't know he was actually in a, a different gym than the main stadium when they were doing it. So but no, we didn't see that. And then once uh, we heard the kind of history that he came straight down on his head with all that pain, uh, it kind of made the decision relatively easy to, to transport at that point. So once you decide to um, to stabilize someone, what I know you talked about two different methods. What is your preferred method of stabilization? If there's enough qualified hands, I like the six-man lift, and I think that's been shown in the literature as well as there's decreased cervical motion when you're lifting up as opposed to rolling. Mm -hmm. uh, that being said, if you don't have enough help, no one's going to fault you for doing a log roll. And you, there's no way to do a six-man lift if the person's in a prone position. Because like I said, the athletes never fall straight down back on their back <laughs> in neutral alignment. You always have to make those alterations. The thing is trying to do everything methodical. And I think the biggest thing is just trying to minimize the motion as best you can. Speaking of minimizing motion, I know, um, like you said, n not everyone's going to fall perfectly straight on their back, ready to be um, stabilized. But 
Um, when is it appropriate to move the neck into neutral or the? I think it's always as long as you have that that head squeeze or the trap squeeze to put mm -hmm. it back in neutral because it, if they're tilted one way or another, they're blocking off their airway too, so we don't have good access to the airway. So if they're unconscious, if they need a secondary breathing tube or anything, we have to put it in a in a neutral position. Um, so I think it's always appropriate to get them in a more neutral uh, position just to establish the airway. Um, can you talk a little bit about the differences between a head um, head and a, a trap? Yeah, so the, the head squeeze is more basically putting your hands around the helmet or the athlete's head as opposed to a trap squeeze where you're going down and putting your thumbs and your index fingers across their traps. And it basically gives you more stability because you're stabilizing their head versus your forearms versus just holding your hands there mm -hmm. because there is a point where you can get fatigued too and uh -huh. you're just adding in motion. So I think it's more ergonomic, but I think it gives more stability to the cervical spine as well. <clears throat> you know, actually... Um, it's a it's a great idea that we practice, and this really came into um, consideration just a few weeks ago when we were doing spring football at my college. And um, something that I didn't think about is I was wearing a puffy jacket that was very slick. And so when I went to practice a log roll, now granted I was holding some other stuff, so um, you know, but the helmet slipped right out my arms right. because I was wearing a puffy jacket and. Yeah. That's something that, you know, I have worn to football practice before. So now I'm like, oh, now I have to consider if I'm going to do the trap squeeze, I have to really pay attention to external factors. What right. can make that helmet yeah. slip? Yeah, and I think that's why it's practicing and figuring out how everything works. Um, because once you get it down, then there's a lot of adrenaline and emotion rolling when it, that actually happens. But if you practice this over and over again, it just becomes a routine. And I said on that one. Uh, wrestler, we were uh, made the decision to spine board into the EMS within five minutes and all oh, the way wow. to the hospital because it was something we had practiced uh, multiple times. So it, everything just flowed naturally with uh, athletic trainers as well as the EMS crew as well. What are some tips you have for someone who is working with an uh, equipment intensive sport like hockey that they're not as familiar with the equipment? Practice. <laughs> Get in there with your equipment manager and see mm -hmm. how things work. Um, mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you how to put on a hockey uh, helmet or mask or shoulder pads, but I think if I was covering something like that, that would be uh, something I'd want to learn relatively quick because there, there's always practice stuff that you can do. They always take them apart to serve some and look at it and see how it works because uh, you don't want to be unfamiliar when something happens. These don't happen. Uh, this is why we practice because they don't happen on a routine uh, basis, but when they do happen, every, you want everything to go right. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, you also talked about um, the post um, after someone gets spine boarded and they um, are on their way to the hospital. What does it look like once they are at the hospital? So once they're at the hospital, we do that equipment removal as we showed in the, the video. Uh, they'll go into a cervical collar at that point mm -hmm. um, and then uh, straight to a CT scan is initial one. Um, so the CT scan is, is quick, readily available. And then based on that, then it would be an automatic uh, neurosurgery or orthopedic uh, spine surgery and consult on there. Uh, because a lot of these, the middle school kids, sometimes they'll have nothing that you'll see on the CT scan. Uh, they'll need an MRI, but they just see some core signal change, but there's no fracture. So it's that's why we, on any suspicion of spinal cord injuries, we transport to our level one because we have all the facilities we need there. We don't want to transport one place and then have to get on a helicopter and we're doing multiple moves. We just, we make that call and we head to the level one where we have all the capabilities. Um, can you talk about some, um, the differences between, I know that there's been a lot of talk about different places that have stopped spine boarding or have been treating 
um, some of these spinal cord injuries in athletics more like uh, motorcycle accidents? Yeah, I, I, th I think it's two different mechanisms, and I think it's uh, two different schools of thought, um, and that's what you get in medicine. You always have different ways. I think most of the research around uh, that I showed today is around the football athlete as opposed mm -hmm. to the motorcycle accident, things like that. So I think there's schools of thought, and that was what we approached with the EMS probably four years ago. Their literature said, oh, we don't need a spine board. We don't need it. Well, this is completely different, and that's why we had them hey, let's, you want to try this scoop board, let's try it on this on full pads on a field, uh, sport turf that's not grass, and mm -hmm. let's see how that works. So I think sometimes just education and coming up with a compromise, but then making sure when the time comes, everyone's on the same page. The last thing you want to do is have any showdown when you're trying to, the number one priority is the patient or the athlete, and we want to take care of them. Yeah, definitely as an athletic trainer, you're going to come across a lot of different EMS squads. Um, I was working... Uh, youth football one night and then the next night I was working a high school football and just the the back-to-back -back, unfortunately I did have two injuries where I did have to spine board back-to-back -back. Um, however one night I had a crew that put them on a spine board and then the next night in a different county two hours away um, they didn't spine board so right. again it's about being flexible and yeah. you know you can't get to the EMS squad ahead of time every single time right you know but definitely if you're in a place that you're um, like at a college or a high school or a, somewhere where you're more familiar or where you're going to be staying in the area, you can definitely have those conversations with EMS ahead of time. Yeah, and there's always uh, the ability, if you don't feel comfortable with something they're doing, is to ask for a supervisor, and that's what we've asked our athletic trainers. If they're doing something that we haven't talked about, hey, can we, can we call the supervisor? Because these are big EMS areas, and you can't control what everyone does or what everyone remembers, so it's one of those hey, let's stop the athlete stable, and can we call for the supervisor is always a, a easy way to do that instead of having kind of any back and forth or anything. Um, you also talked about the order of um, on the helmet, which, um, which the side pieces you're supposed to take off first. Can you talk a little bit about the order of yeah. that? Yeah, the reason you take out the side pieces first is you can flip the helmet, the face mask up, and mm -hmm. that gives you immediate access. So if you need to get to the airway quick, the quickest, then you want to take the sides and you can roll that up to easily get to the airway. You ideally want to take off all those, but if you have, for some reason, you need to start CPR, you need to put a secondary uh, breathing device in, it gives you quick access to that area. I know I've been looking a little bit at um, CPR with um, shoulder pads and uh, with a spinal cord injury, if you're having to do CPR and you're removing the equipment, you would uh, you would leave the shoulder pads in place as long as you open them up? I open them up, but I think if you're getting into a CPR case, you're probably going ahead and taking everything off because at that point it, it's more emergency situation where you have to get the uh, circulatory system moving uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to and then still trying to do uh, CPR with it. But I think in those situations, I, I think you're probably looking at removing everything at that point, um, which hopefully it's extremely rare that you're getting both situations, but that's why, you know, everyone has to be versed on being able to take the helmet and shoulder pad off if needed. Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, do you have any recommendations for an athletic trainer who has um, not a lot of volunteers or staff or anyone in who might just be working alone? Uh, you have coaches. Perfect. 
and train the coaches. Mm -hmm. uh, all my athletic trainers have access to uh, the videos that we did um, so they can show it to their coaches because you always have football coaches that are there and I'm making sure they're online, especially a middle school game. There's probably one athletic trainer there. There's not a whole lot of, it's not like a Friday or Saturday night where you have EMS crew and multiple athletic trainers. So um, making sure your coaches are in line with helping you do all that. Um, and then also you talked about with um, the incidence of these injuries, um, not as high in NFL or higher levels. And then kind of um, the highest incidence I saw um, on the chart that you had was in middle school and high school. Um, can you talk a little bit about why? I think it's still learning appropriate tackling technique, not leading with your head. Um, I think the middle school is tackling technique, but also making sure that we're fitting the helmet and shoulder pads appropriately. I think that's where it comes down to. I think at the varsity level, there's more probably more eyes on it than at the middle school level where you have multiple kids and coming in and out and not the newest equipment all the time as well. Great. Is there anything else that you that we didn't touch upon that you wanted to add? No, I think I think the biggest thing is educating and preparing and making sure everyone's on the same page. Take the time during the off season to get with your EMS crew. Use your team doctor and their medical director to make sure everyone's online because that's where everything flows smoothly on all that. Yeah. All right, Dr. Camarillo, any way you'd like to connect with people, social media, email? Uh, yeah, I can. Uh, I have, you want me to send, my email's really long. Well, I, I have the, I can <laughs> okay. get the email from Bob. Yeah, so. yeah, we'll send that out. Cool. If they have any questions, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not on any social media, so uh, we'll, we'll send an email. So. Makes life easier. Yep. So for Jeremy Jackson, Randy and Sandy from the AT Corner, Dr. Matt Camarillo and the Sports Medicine Update 2023. This is the Sports Medicine Broadcast, and this one is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash backboarding. Against backboarding would be one word, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash backboarding. Dr. Camarillo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.